and welcome to the Real Fix podcast, your fix of real life stories. I'm Hattie Bishop, I'm a journalist, and I help people share their stories with the national newspapers and magazines. Each week, I'll be joined by my lovely colleagues from our newsroom, and we'll introduce you to some fascinating people telling their remarkable stories in their own words. We've officially hit double figures. This is episode 10. Thanks to you all for listening and supporting us along the way. This is actually the last episode before we take a short season break, but it's a good one. We'll be speaking to a snowboarder who nearly died on the slopes. He survived but was paralysed from the neck down. He tells us about adjusting to life as a new dad. Some of the emptiness, some of the kind of dark areas of my my mind and where my thoughts go um, when I'm feeling a little bit down. A lot of that shrank, um, so the spaces where I could go to feel depressed kind of um, just there weren't space for them anymore because so much of my brain is now filled with um, thoughts about providing and uh, being with my kids. We also chat to the woman who was conceived during a one-night stand on a paradise island and met her dad for the first time 34 years on, just like the film Mamma Mia. Is he going to tell me to F off? If he, is he going to be like, oh my gosh, I'd love to get to know you. You know, like there's so many things that can run through your head when you're reaching out to a stranger who you know about, but they don't know about you. But first, we'll hear from a woman who saw something no daughter should see. She watched her dad being murdered in an online video. His name was David Haynes, and he was a humanitarian aid worker from Perth in Scotland, who was taken hostage by ISIS in Syria in March 2003. His daughter Bethany was just 16 at the time. And after months of waiting, she discovered terrorist Jihadi John had not only beheaded her dad, but had released the video of his death online. She spoke to Harriet Rosegale about deciding to watch the video and how her life changed forever. He had just come back from doing some aid work in South Sudan and he had come over to Scotland to spend some time with me and his parents. And he wasn't really his usual self. I think a lot of what he saw in South Sudan really affected him um, more than it usually would when he was away. Um, and he'd said, look, this is the last time I'm going to be going away. I'm not doing this anymore. Um, and he did try and get a job, but he was one of these people who loved to travel and he just couldn't settle down. And I very much understood that. And so when he said he was going to Syria, I was completely fine with it. I didn't know much about Syria. I didn't know much about what was going on there. And compared to some of the other places he'd been, I thought, oh, this is just going to be a breeze. You'll come back and, to be honest, you'll be too old to go. So, <laughs> And before he left, you guys had a movie night, didn't you, with ice cream and brownies. And a few days later, he texted you to say he was being posted to Syria. And he went to work at a camp for local people forced to flee their homes. Um, but yeah. he, he was only there for a few weeks before he was abducted um, alongside Italian aid worker Federico Motka. Um, yeah. by an unidentified armed gang in April 2013. So how did you find out about what happened? I actually didn't find out about my dad's kidnapping till nearly a month after. Um, he was kidnapped on March 12th and he had sent me a text that morning just saying I'm going to be out in the field for a while. 
I won't be contactable, but I love you sort of thing. Hope school's good. And that was really usual for him to do, so it didn't really worry me. And it wasn't till my birthday, which was April 6th, that I started to get a bad feeling. I was in France with friends, and no matter where my dad was in the world, he would always phone me on my birthday. And he hadn't done it, and it got to about 9 o'clock at night. And I just had this overwhelming feeling of something being really wrong. And I was phoning, I was texting... And obviously I couldn't get through it. It was just ringing out or his phone would be off. So I eventually phoned my mum and she had said, look, I'll look into it for you. And But I, th- I think everything's fine. And so she got in touch with my uncle who had told her that my dad had actually been kidnapped. But due to his military background, it had to be kept a secret and that I couldn't be told till I came home. So she phoned me back and just said, yeah, everything's fine. But this sinking feeling that something was wrong was really telling me something wasn't right. And so when my mum actually told me, um, it was more a bit of relief because I thought he'd been killed. And I thought, well, if he's kidnapped, I mean, this sort of thing happens quite a lot. And I was kind of reassured by the fact that I was getting told he had insurance. The aid company had like ransom insurance, so... It wasn't actually a huge deal. It was difficult not knowing what truly had happened because I was getting lots of different stories. And then it wasn't until recently that I was told that they'd been travelling back from the camp they were at along one of the country roads. And it was getting dark. And two cars had come and kind of blocked their vehicle in. And they were kind of abducted and forced into boot of a car and then they were taken to a makeshift prison in the region of Idlib where a lot of like Syrian prisoners were being held by ISIS and during that time they were questioned extensively and that's when the kind of the rumours about torture techniques being implemented were came into play. They were only held there for a few months until they were moved to the, uh, a children's hospital in Aleppo um, that ISIS and the Al-Nusra Front were kind of sharing for look, capturing prisoners and interrogating them. And that's where they met uh, James Foley and John Cantley. And <clears throat> they had, I think they all shared quite a good bond. Um, I know my dad and Frederico were really close and they are quite similar and personality so um I think my my dad from what I've been told my dad was more of a practical person and was saying you know it's all going to be fine um the UK governments and all the different governments involved are going to get us out of here and they very much believed that and so you guys issued a public plea for his captors to get in touch But a day later, on September the 14th, 2014, 18 months after your dad was taken, um, you got the news that he'd been killed and that ISIS had released footage of his execution as part of a propaganda video. You found out when your mum, accompanied by the police, drove over to your house at one o'clock in the morning. How did you feel? Uh, um, I I was at my boyfriend's house, which is the middle of nowhere. 
you don't get any phone signal you don't get any internet and for some reason I decided to turn my phone off that night which is something I never do my phone's on 24 7 especially at that time because I was always thinking if I uh, if someone needs to get a hold of me I need to be contactable uh, but for some reason that night I just thought oh, I'll have a night off and then we'd got the knock at the door and it didn't really click with me to begin with like we could see the police lights in the reflection of the window and I thought oh no what's my boyfriend done he's going to get arrested um, and then I heard my mum and I thought oh are they here for me am I getting arrested what have <laughs> I done and then this um, my boyfriend had said to my mum is it her dad and my mum had gone yeah um, so I remember I was getting kind of changed and I deliberately took a long time because I thought I don't want to show any kind of emotion I can't deal with this tonight and so I came out and they said oh you're there's a video being released of your dad and it was the police telling me this and I went right okay and they said I take it you want to go home with your mum and I went no I'm just going to stay here and I gave my mum a hug and kind of said bye to her and I said look I'll come home in the morning I'm just not doing this tonight and I had a cup of tea and a cigarette and I just went back to bed and thought I need one more night of normality and to have him here before I have to deal with a lifetime of not having him around and that night I felt really close to him it was almost I'm not really into like ghosts or spirits or any of that I kind of think it's all a bit in your head but that night I felt really close to him and like he was there and I was really comforted and then the next morning I went home and that's kind of when all hell kind of broke loose. And tell us about the process you went through deciding whether to watch the video or not. Um, well, even after my dad's death, we weren't getting a lot of information. Um, I had so many questions and I had a lot of people coming up to me saying, oh, I've watched the video. Have you seen it? And... I, my response was no I don't really want to see it and they said but how do you know it's really your dad and there was a lot of kind of rumours that it was fake and I thought enough's enough I'm going to just watch it and I kind of locked myself in at the bathroom and um, watched it and although it was hard um, I think for me it was the right decision to do it gave me a closure it was a final answer that yes it was him I could tell that um, just from his appearance and his voice um, and also to kind of hear him speak he was quite strong um, I was always worried that he would be so frightened and I, I didn't know how he'd react to obviously having to say these words and then the aftermath of it but it was nice to hear him still being strong in these last moments. So although it was a horrible thing to see, um, it was also a bit of a comfort as well. And now the video, if you don't mind, um, yeah. can you describe it briefly for the listeners or would you rather we did that? Um, it sounds strange, but I've actually watched it a few times. It just, it was like nothing that had been seen before. Obviously there had been beheading videos before, but even the way it was shot and where it was, just this desert with Jihadi John dressed in his black outfit and um, the hostages all being in orange jumpsuits. 
and his speech and making hostages do their speech. Um, it was like nothing I'd ever seen. It was like something out of a movie. And I think that's probably why there was a lot <clears throat> of rumours about the videos being fake. And I think that's probably what sparked me into wanting to know if everything about my dad's kind of time was it was real or not. And it became very apparent that very early on that it was real. And so it was released by ISIS as propaganda and was called yeah. A Message to the Allies, Allies of America. And it shows Mohammed Amwazi, known as Jihadi John, dressed in a black outfit and mask. Your dad is in an orange top, kneeling next to him. And they're in what looks like a rocky, sandy desert. And Amwazi has him <clears throat> say, my name is David Cawthorn Haynes. I would like to declare that I hold you, David Cameron, entirely responsible for my execution um, before he beheads him. And can you describe what it was like to watch it for the first time? At first, when you like see it all, and I thought, oh, this is like too good to be real. And so you kind of just like, yeah, okay, that whatever, they're not actually going to do it. And um, it wasn't towards, it was more coming towards the end and the way they were talking and the the speech my dad gave. And it was almost like a look in his eye that kind of told me, you know what, this is actually real. And I was more angry than anything else. And when the final scene cut out to his remains, um, it was more like, I, I think I was physically sick that day with it. And then after that, it was more anger. I thought, this isn't right. And it is something that will always stay with me. It's the same with all the videos and certain things that I've seen over the years doing my investigation. It's There's certain parts of it that do haunt you. Um, and that definitely is one of them. It was more a bit of a shock um, to actually see the remains after as well. I didn't really expect any of that. You just imagine it'll be fine and they'll say something and then they'll just confirm your dad's dead. But to actually see the body was something completely different. Yeah, I don't think anything could have prepared you for that. And struggling to cope with what you'd seen, you turned to self-harm and alcohol to cope with the pain. But a real turning point for you was when you fell pregnant with your son, Aidan, who was born in August 2015. How did he change things for you? Um, I felt really lost after my dad's death. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what my life would be after it. Like, how does someone get over something like that? And then to find out I was pregnant, it was gave me something to focus on and it gave me something to say, right, okay, enough's enough. I need to get my life together for my son. And... Even to see my son when he was born, and even now he looks so much like my dad, that it almost felt like my dad was giving me something to live for. And in November 2015, Mwazi, or Jihadi John as he's known, was killed in a drone yeah. airstrike as he left the building and entered a vehicle. How did you feel when you heard that? Um... I got a phone call at seven in the morning from someone saying, you know, he's dead. And at first I was like, oh, thank goodness for that. Like, we got him, this is it. 
and it wasn't really till last year when I was actually in Syria and we walked to the spot where he was killed and it was such a good feeling because I thought he's never going to get justice in the UK like realistically our justice system doesn't work that way and um, it was great but I think there's always a part of me that would really like the opportunity to have seen him either in an interview or to have been able to even speak to him personally one-on-one to just get a feel of who he was and how he came to this point of doing this sort of thing and how he could almost justify it so there is always these going to be these unanswered questions but I do think him being hit by a drone strike was probably the best thing and if you could speak to him what would you have said um I think I would just want want to know why why did he come to this point where he thought being an executioner for a terrorist group was the best path in life? And how could he look someone in the eyes for months and months and not care for them, but provide them food and water and then so just disassociate completely and execute them on, in a, on camera? It just doesn't really make sense to me. And you went to Syria last year. What was the purpose of your trip? Um, for me, it was, I found the spot where I think my dad was executed. I really wanted to see that spot. And I felt really close to my dad, which I hadn't felt since really the time that I was told he was had been killed. So um, it was also a chance for me to go and see where, what my dad did. Um, I'd never really been to a country that was um, kind of in a crisis and I'd never seen like the aftermath of war firsthand and I also wanted to see the type of people he was helping as it had been so widely known about ISIS's atrocities over there I wanted to speak to some of the victims over there and see how they're getting help and how they're coping and it was one of the best things I've ever done and did you ever watch the video again and do you regret watching it at all? Um, I think for me now, I just want the answers. I don't watch it for a personal reason. I wouldn't watch it to see my dad's last moments because I, I don't think of him like that. I don't, I don't choose to remember him that way. Um, I'll watch it if there's something that I need to check or if I'm trying to confirm the the background of it. But I wouldn't watch it because I want to see my dad or I want to hear his last words. It's just not something I choose to remember him by. And I, I mean, I don't regret it at all because for me, it was another piece of the puzzle. And how do you choose to remember your dad and keep his memory alive? I choose to remember him by the fun things we did together and going going cycling together, him being funny and making really silly jokes and laughing and smiling. Um, I don't kind of choose to remember him as this kind of emaciated figure in an orange jumpsuit with a knife to his throat. It's not who he was. He was strong. And I think if he had had a choice he probably would have told Jihadi John where to go um, during that speech.
A very emotional story there and so brave of Bethany to share it with us. We will keep in touch with her to let you know how she gets on with her investigations. Now, we're going to speak to Tom from Oxfordshire in England about the moment his life changed forever. He was a sporty, healthy and active young man when he slipped and dislocated his neck while snowboarding. He miraculously survived, but feared he'd never have a child with his then-girlfriend, Ellen. But they stuck it out and have a gorgeous little boy called Ori. Tom chatted to Katie Pearson about becoming a dad while disabled and having the family he feared he'd never have. I was, yeah, I was snowboarding in a snow park and I um, I was doing doing tricks in the snow park that I'd done you know, many times before, uh, nothing particularly unusual, but I hit a I hit a patch of ice on one of the kickers. Um, so that's the, you know, the end part of the jump before you, um, before you get air. And um, the, the, the snowboard slipped from under me and I rotated in the air and then landed on my, landed on the back of my head, uh, which crushed my neck um, and gave me a spinal injury. The mountain rescue team came and um, took me off the mountain uh, took me down on a sled to the to the to the base of the hill, um, and then off to off to the, one of the military hospitals in Bulgaria, uh, where I had surgery. And you said the rescue team found you and uh, found your phone in your pocket. And I think during that time you managed to mouth Ellen before losing consciousness. Yeah, uh, yeah, I remember. I remember the face of the the guy who was um, obviously um, very urgently trying to to help to help. Uh, me direct him on who to contact with the phone and I uh, I mouthed the word Ellen and he managed, he managed to find the contact on the phone. And you um, went into cardiac arrest three times before you got to hospital and like you said severed your spinal cord. What were your other injuries? From what, from what I remember um, being told to me uh, my my first two ribs so my clavicle and the, the first rib um, were damaged uh, were, were broken and I think one one of the ribs was piercing the the lungs, um, so the lung was filling up on one side um, with with blood. Um, and yeah, the ne- the neck was crushed forward, and that was a uh, damage to the C, I think the C7 vertebrae, um, which later, unfortunately, later I had a bone infection, which then affected the other vertebrae up to C3. Um, so I now have a C3 injury, which means I am paralysed from the shoulders down. Um, it was yeah, it was about 15 months of of rehab in the hospital um, and lots of complications because of the level of injury. I needed um, to have surgery within four hours um, to stabilise the neck. Um, so it was very very fortuitous that I ended up at the military hospital. It was partly due to some friend friend contacts in Bulgaria, and then we were very lucky in that there was a visiting spinal surgeon in the military hospital who operated um, within a few hours uh, and that saved my life. Um, the injury was quite extensive and then uh, I was stabilized within a week uh, to then fly by air ambulance um, to, to, to get a place at Stoke Mandeville um, to start rehab um, and, and then immediately had to have another operation within, within that three-week period. Um, but it was... Um, yeah, probably, you know, a good few days of unconsciousness in Bulgaria. And that was a scary time for my family uh, because we didn't know whether I was going to survive. 
And what did the doctors say to Ellen about your prognosis and, and the future during that time? Do you know? Once I was back in the UK, after a few weeks, uh, there were discussions. Um, I had to be kind of weaned off quite a high doses of medication that meant it was quite difficult for me to remember anything uh, in, the, in the first month or so. Um, and I wasn't able to really comprehend uh, the extent of the injury and kept smiling when I woke up. And then when finally we, I was able to understand what was going on and having meaningful conversations with the doctor, it was very difficult to, to kind of understand that I wasn't going to walk again. Um, those first messages uh, weren't very well received by me. It was, you know, very hard to take. Uh, I'm sure anyone can relate to that. Um, I'm, I was a sporty individual. Uh, and so the idea of not being able to do physical sports again uh, was, was very difficult to, to kind of to comprehend and to deal with. And, it, you know, I don't, I don't think you ever fully uh, accept or become comfortable with that situation. I still miss all the activities that I would like to do. Um, but it was a slow slow process of trying to focus on the, the things that I was still going to be able to do in life um, and try and adjust my scopes uh, accordingly. So you were brought back to the UK and spent over a year in Stoke Mandeville Hospital in Ellsbury, That's Buckinghamshire, correct. before you left and came back home in August 2008? That's correct, yes. Um, and what physical disabilities or abilities did the accident leave you with? So I'm unable, uh, the, the injury has been fairly static. Uh, it's a spinal injury at the level of C4, C3, uh, which is basically very at the very top of the cervical vertebrae uh, chain. And it means I'm unable to move my limbs voluntarily uh, from the shoulders down. So I've got no arm or leg movement. Um, so I'm confined to a powered wheelchair and I have uh, gone through various uh, controls to, to move the chair. And most of them involve using my head because uh, I still have neck movement. So I can use a head switch array or a, um, you know, kind of gyroscope control, which I have at the moment, um, to drive the wheelchair. Uh, I use voice recognition for everything else um, and have, you know, varying levels of independence with, with using computer. But I'm very dependent on a care team to help me with all the physical needs of the day. So I know you're certainly a, a glass half full and quite optimistic, positive person now, certainly. And was that ever not the case? I guess, can you tell us about maybe some of the darker moments you might have had in the earlier days? Yeah, there was, there was many of those, unfortunately. Uh, as a, you, know, it, you know, coming to grips with the, with the loss of physical ability and the change in um, the scope of what, might life what life has to offer, especially when it's uncertain in the early days during rehab. Uh, you know, it's, it's very dark. And I had lots of time where I wasn't able to really face talking to people about it and especially engaging with relatives. Um, because obviously when you share, you know, you're sharing that grief with, with those around you. Um, and often you don't want to burden people with excess amounts of grief. Um, you know, most notably Ellen, I didn't want to a lot of that on on her and was trying to find ways along with other family members of giving her some independence some separation some time where she could kind of do her own thing because she was trying to finish her her art degree um and yeah so a lot of time during that dark phase i i lent quite heavily on my relationship with my dad um who was you know rock during that time who i could lean on and uh burden with my grief and he was um you know, very receptive. 
And in terms of your relationship with Ellen, how did that and the accident impact it? Um, it, it was it was very hard, uh, you know. Some of the some of the difficult memories to kind of or thoughts to have are how hard it was for her during the period in Bulgaria where um, it wasn't certain about what future we were going to have or whether we we're going to have any future. Um, so those are probably the hardest things to think about from my perspective because obviously I care deeply for her and it was a very traumatic time for her. Um, and yeah, just very grateful that she had friends around um, and family to support her. Um, but in terms of our relationship, we obviously struggled. Well, we struggled together. We we brought each other through the dark moments, um, leaning on each other and, um, you know, sharing a lot of the grief with each other. Uh, my approach, as soon as I had my head around it, was to try to separate Ellen from needing to do any care because I think... Um, I think relying on your loved one, loved ones to provide personal care for you um, when the needs are so extreme uh, can be something very difficult. And she had her own her own things to deal with in life, um, and I didn't want her to be the primary care uh, caregiver for me um, because we needed to maintain a relationship which was, you know, functional and you know intimate, um, and that's very difficult when you're asking someone to provide personal care for you and I know you guys so you know you were bought closer than ever really and you got engaged in in 2012 and and then married two years later yeah exactly we had um we had a wonderful wedding it was uh, one of the highlights of my life um we had tons of friends we had a kind of very music themed um very into we're both very into live music so we had three or four bands playing it's like a mini uh mini music festival and uh, it was over three days it was a yeah, spectacular event with lots of friends and family i know that ellen's in the past had people you know rudely congratulate i suppose her on 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 staying with you and staying together and i how, like, can you tell me about that and how I'll how has that affected her and you and your relationship yeah so that i, I think that's been hard for, for ellen um I, th- I don't think it's very unexpected uh, i think a lot of people will look at our situation and our relationship and feel that you know feel that there i mean there there is probably more that ellen gives to me in our relationship than i give back uh that's not for for want of trying on my part um but i think for a lot of people they don't necessarily see the full picture i mean we do have a very functional relationship and um, where we can both contribute to each other's well-being but from the outside uh, it does look like to many people and I can understand why um, that she is basically just looking after me um, and we don't have that kind of reciprocal relationship and that's a very understandable perspective um, for people who are not familiar with um, with people who are functioning well in their lives with disability um, and that, yeah I think that's been been very hard for her on on occasions because she wants people to understand that we we do give each other things and it's not just one way um but obviously that's not that's not immediately visible i know you both shared fears about whether you'd be able to have children as well can you tell me a bit about that yeah sure i mean it wasn't wasn't immediately obvious uh to take mandelberg's a brilliant um, it's a brilliant multidisciplinary centre where lots of educational resources are available. Um, so 
there was you know patient education during the time in rehab and i was fortunate to have a lot of that during an extended spell there um and also peer support you know there was tons of very helpful people who would you know talk about the nitty-gritties um so it wasn't whilst it wasn't immediately ob- obvious and it was a very scary thought to not, never be able to have kids at the beginning uh, it wasn't too long before we were given the given the hope and the insight um into the fact that people with high level high level paralysis high level spinal injuries have you know can have very um meaningful sexual lives and reproductive capabilities it's just um it takes a bit of working out slightly less sporadic um and you know a bit more planning so it's less less spontaneous that's the word um so you know these, these things are possible and it was great to hear hear some you know real life stories of people having kids post spinal injury and uh, that was very encouraging from the get-go i was trying to persuade ellen to have kids for a lot a lot longer before we actually did go ahead with it um, but she was very sensible in pursuing some of her um some of her aims and and uh, ambitions in her career which is a good thing yeah um so yeah no, of course it's a very deeply private thing to talk about but um I, uh, but i know before you have sort of summed up this area in your life in a way that you feel comfortable with having said um Often a, a lower spinal injury can leave a man still able to walk, but with no sexual function, whereas a higher break can leave some muscle reflex. And then, so yeah, you guys welcomed baby Ori in 2018. Yeah, that's that's correct. Yeah, he was born in on the March 14th and is um, is an uh, absolute joy. He's um, two and a half now and he's uh, a vibrant individual, very, in, very um, engaging and loving Loving nursery, he has wonderful relationships with his grand grandmas, uh, my mum and Ellen's mum. Uh, both very different people. Uh, he spends a lot of time in the garden, um, gardening with my mum. He's a uh, little green fingers, and he loves digging. Uh, and he, yeah, he fills our lives with um, lots of joy and happiness. And uh, it's been a great progression um, in my life. It's uh, something that I would never be able to describe to anyone. Uh, the feeling of having a having a child and um yeah it's just fulfilling it's it gives you a different headspace a different kind of dimension around what you think about like for me some of the emptiness some of the kind of dark areas of my my mind and where my thoughts go um when i'm feeling a little bit down a lot of that shrank um so the spaces where i could go to feel depressed kind of um just there weren't space for them anymore because so much of my brain is now filled with um thoughts about providing and uh, being with my kids who are um, uh, absolutely great <laughs> that's lovely and kind of touching on that what what fears did you have about becoming a dad after everything that you've been through yeah I was um yeah I mean it's uh, it's a big it's a big subject that and I don't think it's it's one um you know exclusively for people with spinal injuries I think a lot of dads um find the idea of being responsible and being, um, you know, sufficiently providing for their kids, quite quite daunting, um, and that was, um, yeah, very much so for me. Uh, the idea of not being able to hold, hold, hold a child. I mean, that's that's never going to go away. That's never going to be something that I don't think about. I mean, it would be the most wonderful thing for me to be able to hold my children, but it's never going to happen. But we, you know, we you can make make do with a lot of other 
pleasant experiences um, and contact with with kids, and that's you know what I'm trying to do my absolute best at and be a good dad. And yeah, it's difficult not being able to kick a ball around with um, Ori or Max um, and to throw them around and do rough play, uh, which unfortunately and Ellen has to um, handle most of that rough play. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it's it's difficult. I mean, and and, and initially. Um, before having kids, um, those thoughts were were probably greater. Um, I think I've got my head around um, trying to you know, engage with the kids um, now more than I had before. And so my biggest fear was, you know, what if they what if they can't engage with me, or what if they um, just reject me because of you know the physical disability and the the lack of normality. Um, and I, I think actually kids are so good at adapting and understanding that, you know, w- what's normal is what they've got. Um, and that was a great, that was a great takeaway really. Um, and I think Ori reminds me of that every day. Um, he's very happy with the dad he's got. Do you think your accident has, has made you a different parent than you would have otherwise been? Or do you think it's affected your parenting anyway? How you are with your children? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm definitely a different person since the since the accident. Um, it's impossible to you know to, to know or to imagine what I would have been like without having the accident because um, that's like predicting a parallel universe. You know, it's not very easy to do. Um, but I definitely have grown in a number of ways and probably um, you know probably a lot less cocky, probably a bit more mature than I would have having to having to deal with those kind of um, life-changing events really gives you a different perspective on life and I think that probably helps me uh, be a better parent um, at least I hope so um, but uh, yeah I'm, I'm doing my best but I would you know I would be a very different parent if I wasn't um, wasn't who I am today oh that's such a lovely story what a gorgeous family And as Tom touched on there, him and Ellen welcomed their second son, Max, in June this year. Congratulations to you both from all at Real Fix. If you want to read more incredible stories like Tom's, go straight to our website, www.real-fix.com for lots more. Our final story today comes from Alicia from Salt Lake City, Utah in America. When her mum, Betty, met dashing lad Peter in a bar on holiday in 1985, it sparked a holiday romance. But shortly after the trip, Betty found out she was pregnant with no way of contacting the father. It was another 30 years of DNA tests and online research before her daughter Alicia found her dad. She told Lucy Bryant all about her story. Um, I... I remember my mom telling me, even at a young age, I'd be like, who's my dad? And she always would be like, Peter Goldstein's your dad. So she would tell me at a young age, I would always ask. But um, the first real conversation that I had with her about him um, trying to get details so that I could try to find him was after I got out of the military. So roughly 2008 or 2009, we were driving somewhere and I started to ask her and I actually took notes on my phone so that I would remember what she said so that when I was, you know, looking on social media or Googling, um, I I would have some details in order to try to compare, 
you know, what he looked like then to what he might look like now, uh, 30 years later. And essentially she told me his name and that he was on a three month scuba diving vacation with his brother. He was from California, Los Angeles area. Um, he had dark hair, blue eyes, and um, that he treated her so well that, and that she would always remember that the way that he treated her. And you say that he was on a scuba diving holiday and that was on the sun-drenched island of Guam, which is in the Western Pacific Ocean. And your mum was there actually working for the US Navy herself. Um, but obviously they had this amazing time. And when the two of them went their separate ways, they didn't even exchange phone numbers. But that sort of didn't leave you with many clues other than, as you say, his name um, to track him down. Um, but it wasn't till after that they parted ways that your mum realised she was pregnant and that she had no way of getting in touch with Peter to let him know. When did you decide to start searching for your dad? Um, and what information did you have to go on? Um, I mean, I... Through the years, I've I've tried searching. Um, if you Google, if you Google Peter Goldstein, Los Angeles, there's about five million of them. And so, without having any way to know what he looks like now, know what he's doing, and literally just his name, um, there wasn't a lot to go on. My girlfriends and I would casually search Facebook, um, Instagram, you know, social media kind of stuff. But again without having any other information besides his name, uh, there's not a lot to go on there. And it's hard to click on somebody's profile picture and be like, oh, I think I look like him. Yeah, so you really had to turn detective and sort of use the little information that you had. And in the end, you turned to an ancestry site called 23andMe, um, which gave you a Peter Goldstein who... said there was a 50% chance that he was your dad. How long had you been searching when you then found this 50% match that you thought this could actually be him? So I signed up for 23andMe, uh, I think in 2018. And I signed up specifically to see if there was, um, if Peter was on there or if any of his family members were on there. Not one person on his side of the family was on 23andMe. So it was kind of a dud um, every once in a while from 2018 to this year. Um, So I moved to Utah um, at the end of December. So I hadn't checked my account um, uh, since October of 2019. And when the day that I had checked my account, he was on there. So I never actually got a notification that... Um, that he was on there or that I um, had new family members. But, and I don't, I don't know when he did the kit and I don't know when he got his results, but I found him on my account in February. That must've been an incredible moment for you. And was there anything that made you think this might not be him or did you have an immediate gut feeling that it was or? Well, you know, DNA doesn't lie. So when it shows up, Peter Goldstein, 50% shows um, he's Jewish. And so even when I got my ancestry results, I was 50% Jewish. Um, 
And so there was really no question. I like I could not believe my eyes that he was on there. I think I sent a screenshot of it to several of my closest friends and was like, oh, my God, guys, what do do I do here? I was living with my cousin at the time, and she essentially did her detective work, and she actually located a picture of him, and she took a side-by-side photo of me and him and put us together, and she was like, this is this is undeniable. Um, you guys look exactly alike. So uh, from there, it was just a whirlwind. In what way did he look alike to you? Do you have, what similarities do you have? Um, so... We, I, the best way I can describe it is we look like twins. Like we both have blue eyes. I have his nose. I have his ears. Um, I have his smile lines basically down to his chin. They're really, I mean, pretty much every single facial feature that I have um, comes from him. That must have been amazing to see that picture of him for the first time after all those years of searching. So how did you get in touch with him in the end? Um, so, uh, 23andMe has a messaging, essentially a messaging app. Um, and so there was never any question that I wasn't going to reach out, um, whether it was negative or positive, I knew I had to reach out, um, and at least attempt to speak to him. Um, and so I actually just messaged him through 23andMe and, you know, the gist of my first message was, I know this is, you know, a shock to you. I know this is not something you were expecting after getting your results. Um, and I know this is a sensitive situation as you probably have a family of your own. If you, I would love to talk to you and get to know you potentially have a relationship with you. But if that's not something that you're interested in at this moment, like I completely understand that. And kind of left it at that. Um, I think I was writing it while I was at work. I kept copying and pasting it to my girlfriends and they were editing it. And, um, you know, I had to be the perfect first message. So uh, after I sent it, I told him, I was like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> I sent it. Now we wait. Like, is is he going to respond? When is he going to respond? Um, if he does respond, is he going to tell me to f off if he is he going to be like oh my gosh i'd love to get to know you You know like there's so many things that can run through your head when you're reaching out to a stranger who you know about but they don't know about you of course and how did he react to discovering that a paradise fling that he'd had 34 years previously had resulted in a daughter yourself who he had no idea existed um he is actually incredibly kind um he you know, he said that if I wouldn't have reached out first, he probably never would have reached out to me. He kind of just saw it and shoved it into the back of his head. He thought that um, there is no way. He said there's no way nobody's ever reached out to me um, about a daughter, child support, like nothing. I've been living in plain sight my entire life in California and nobody has attempted to get in touch with me. So he asked me where I came from, who my mom was, um, and he said, as soon as I told him I was born in Guam, he knew exactly what it was, and he actually gave me further details um, on his trip. You know, it was a three-month scuba diving trip. He was with his brother. They went to Japan and Singapore and the Maldives, and, you know, the last stop was in Guam, 
and he spent three weeks there with his brother and they essentially lived with my mom for those three weeks and they went their own ways and he went back to California and she stayed on the island so it really is such an amazing story especially obviously for him to then find out and when sort of you decided that you were gonna meet up with him um how long after the sort of initial conversation was that and where did you meet so initially so this was I think at the end of February um I believe when I sent the first message and we conversated um back and forth for about a week um you know, he had questions for me. I had questions for him. His wife was heavily involved in this aspect. Like he, she fully supported him and whatever he wanted to do. Um, I live in Utah. I live in Salt Lake City. And um, they actually had a ski vacation planned for in March, um, the weekend after St. Patrick's Day, March 17th. So they asked me if, um, when they came into town, if we would want to meet up for dinner and meet um, and have dinner and drinks. And they said that I sounded like a lovely person and they would love to get to know me. Um, and so originally we were supposed to meet in March. Uh, that didn't work out. Um, we, you know, Salt Lake City had a pretty massive earthquake. And then, uh, you know, with the coronavirus, the ski resort started shutting down and they ultimately canceled their trip. Um, so I thought, you know, looking back, I actually think that that was perfect because meeting one week after you, you even speak to each other or two weeks after you speak to each other, like I had no idea what to expect. I, you know, I was nervous. I, I wanted to cry you know, like, I just can't believe this is happening to me. Um, but the fact that they had to cancel their trip gave us a little bit more um, opportunity to be able to call each other and text each other and get to know each other through that type of uh, mean before meeting. And so um, our first meeting was the first weekend in June. Um, and I think that meeting in June versus March was so much better because we had the opportunity to get to know each other. So you know, meeting them at the airport, it was like I was just picking up, you know, my dad and stepmom. And it wasn't like I was picking up a, you know, a stranger. The conversations just flowed. It, we laughed, we drank, um, we ate a lot of food, but it was like no time had passed at all. Like we'd known each other for my entire life. Yeah, it must have been an incredible moment. And, and what do you have in common with, with your dad? Well, we both love football. Um, we're both hilarious. Uh, <laughs> if you do say so yourself. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, both incredibly kind hearted. He's, you know, he's incredibly kind hearted. He's constantly thinking about other people. His wife is just astronomically amazing. Like I could not have been more lucky to have her as a bonus mom. Um, but I think like just our personalities, um, are very similar you know, our, obviously our facial features, we look like each other. Um, we act like each other. Um, we are active. We both like to go running. We both like to, um, you know, go bike riding, you know, just stuff like that, that I don't necessarily, it doesn't seem like big things, but it's stuff I don't have in common with like my mom or my sister either. 
so just, and you know, we're still definitely trying to get to know each other. They have, um, come to visit me a couple more times and, um, I've been out there to California, um, to meet my sisters and their friends. And then I'll be back out there, um, at the end of this month for Thanksgiving. Um, so we're trying to, you know, we're still getting to know each other, but we are essentially twins. Like we act like each other. We talk like each other. A lot of similarities indeed. Um, and in terms of your relationship now, you say it's maybe more like twins than um, father-daughter. Is there any ways that it's really father-daughter? Has he sort of stepped in and been that kind of dad and father figure for you as well? Um, absolutely. And I know that that's um, definitely what he's striving for as well. Um, he's he's come on to you know treating me like he treats his other daughters um, versus a stranger, essentially. Um, he missed out on 34 years. And so um, I think that ultimately his goal and the relationship that he wants is a father-daughter relationship. He didn't have me his whole life. So if I needed help with something, you know, in my teenage years, he wasn't there for that. So if I need something now, or if I mention that I want something, you know, he is, he's trying to, um, take care of that stuff for me. But, you know, when you think about getting into a father daughter relationship, you're ultimately strangers, right? Like we're still strangers, not necessarily strangers now, but we're still getting to know each other. And so, um, that's part of the learning process. That's something that we have to deal with not having known each other for 34 years. And how have, how have your sort of new sisters been in sort of welcoming you into the family? They've actually been incredible. Um, so they, Peter and Camille is my stepmom's name. Um, they told them about me Memorial Day weekend before they came out here. And she said, you know, they both had different reactions, but ultimately um, they came to essentially love the idea. And they thought it was so cool that, Peter, as you know, somebody who has his life, life established and his family established, was um, willing to step up and accept me into his into his life and into his family's life. And um, you know, he got a lot of kudos for that because a lot of people would have been like, "Don't ever talk to me again." Um, you know, ultimately, I, I have a pretty good Cinderella story because it could have ended up so differently. But um, I, I, we Facetime them the first time um, when they were here in June and we exchanged phone numbers and then I met them in person in July. Um, I went down there for a weekend and um, hung out with them, met some of their friends. We went, you know, to the beach, we went shopping. We just did kind of stuff that family does together and there was no quiffs about it. They're, you know, like they, op they open their arms to me and they open their homes to me and it's, you know, um, it's been incredible because they are quite a bit younger than I am. One is 20 and one is 23. Um, and so, you know, having somebody come in that's essentially 10 years older um, can be really difficult. Um, and to, you know, accept somebody else that is on the outside um, can be really difficult. And the way that they handled it, I think, is awesome but they took it with stride just like everybody else has taken it um and they've been accepting and it's just been a blast 
yeah, that must have made it the whole process so much easier and smoother for you and just so much more enjoyable. Like it's already a wonderful, a wonderful thing to discover that you've got family, but for them to to sort of welcome you with open arms is just amazing. And obviously your mum, it must have been quite strange for her, I imagine, to have known your dad all those years ago and then you obviously want to track him down and then you're successful. Um, how has she sort of found found it, you getting back in touch with Peter again? Um, so I called her um, and I, you know, I was like, hey, so I signed up for 23andMe um, and Peter's on there. Woo! <laughs> Um, I wasn't sure how she was going to react to the information. Um, you know, she's had me to herself my entire life. And ultimately, like, you know, if it goes good, you know, now you have to share if it goes bad, then it goes bad and you don't have to deal with it again. Um, but I asked her, I did ask her what she thought about um, me reaching out to him. And she's like, this is something you've wanted your entire life. If you think that I'm going to be upset or I'm concerned. Um, she's like, I just, I'm not, um, if you want to reach out to him, I would say absolutely. But she's like, it sounds like you've thought about it. Um, you know, and how you're going to handle potential rejection or how you're going to handle, um, potential interest. Uh, so she's like, if that's something that you want to do, then you should absolutely do it. Um, and so I did. Um, and she, you know, she was interested in the entire process, um, and how it was going. And she's been, I mean, very excited for me. I know she was a little concerned at first, um, not for her, not for her personally, but for me. Um, but now that she sees that it's going so well, she'll text me and be like, you know, how's Camille or how, you know, how are the girls? And, you know, is genuine, genuinely interested, um, and how and how they are. So really, you've just had the best level of support from every single person around you, which I know might not have been the case, but that must have, as we said, just have made the whole process just a, a wonderful experience for you. Um, and I know you mentioned and you called it a Cinderella story. Um, I just wondered if anyone's ever compared compared your situation to the film Mamma Mia because it has obviously a few similarities with the not knowing who that your dad is and the fact that it's on a beautiful paradise island has ever anyone ever compared it to that at all um it's been compared you know it's a Cinderella story is essentially is what it gets a lot and it's not be um you know it's because of the outcome um and how like it how it how it plays out and how it's so positive because I do I do know and I do um, take to heart that you know people who are looking for loved ones don't always get a positive um, ending and it can be you know super detrimental to some people and so I do you know when I talk about my story I I talk about it and I'm like you know I know people don't get this ending and I know people haven't experienced this and so I try to make people aware that while while I'm so excited that mine has been so positive um, I do I do know and I am aware that some people don't have the same you know results as I do but I've actually never heard it 
um, compared to Mamma Mia. <laughs> I, I feel like okay. I can watch that movie again. It's been years, but that's so interesting. Yeah, now you have. Luckily for you, it was just the one man. You didn't have to pick between three because that would have made it a whole lot harder. <laughs> well, thankfully, I had DNA to tell me who it was. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You can check out our Facebook page, Real Fix, for more on that story and lots of others. So that's it for this episode and series one. Thank you so much to the thousands of you who have listened and thank you to our guests too. We're actually going to bring you a Christmas special in a few weeks time but apart from that we'll see you with season two in 2021. Hit subscribe so you get the new series delivered straight to you when it's ready and give us a review on your podcast app if you have enjoyed series one. In the meantime, you can find lots of stories just like the ones on this podcast on our Facebook page, Real Fix, and at www.real-fix.com. Real Fix.